All right, we're going to go ahead and get started this morning. Thank you guys so much for joining us at DNC this morning. If this is your first, second, or third time visiting with us, we just love seeing you here, and we hope you keep coming back. Our first announcement is for all of you lovely people who might be interested in helping with sound. That's right. If you enjoy hearing the lovely voices you hear on a Sunday morning, consider help setting up. You can be a college student and help with both Focus Sound and DNC Sound. It is possible. There is no experience required to help with sound. That's right. We'll train you. And these skills look great on a job resume. If you're in another Chula team, you can still help with sound and setup. I don't think you're doing anything else on a Sunday morning. You can get up early and meet with awesome people and meet Josh Caperton, Matthew Cavanaugh, and the like. They're great people. I live with one of them. Ultimately, you can serve your community, which ultimately isn't that what Christ calls us to do. If you're interested, talk to Josh Caperton. He's back there. Next, we have FOJ and LTG. LTG stands for Life Transformation Group, not whatever the uh, cell phone data plan it is. <laughs> Uh, FOJ, if you're an adult in our church and you didn't do FOJ as part of Focus in college, we'd love to do that with you and establish some fundamental values. Uh, if not, cool. <laughs> if you're a college student and you want to do FOJ, ask your Corfa. FOJ is focus on Jesus. Great question from the audience. I appreciate the response. LTG, Life Transformation Group. You visit with people and share in suffering, scripture, and praises. You know, like the Bible tells you to do. If you're interested in a life transformation group, there's a form online you can fill out. Uh, it'll, you know, we can pair you up or make one yourself, ultimately up to you guys. Um, yeah, if for more information on either of these two things and all the other great things our church is doing in our community and within itself, visit our website, um, Denton North Church. Cool. All right, good morning. My name's Brad. Uh, welcome to Denton North Church especially those of you who got tricked into coming this morning because of donuts and coffee. Uh, yeah, I still have a few boxes left back there. All right. Nope, nothing left. Two glazed donuts. And whoever brought the kolaches, you're the real MVP. Uh, I had like three of them. Some of you are like, they were kolaches. Not after I had three of them. So, uh, yeah. Seriously, though, good job on that. Those of you who brought plain donuts, all right, pretty cheap. Might as well have gone to Walmart and bought donuts. Who likes plain donuts? Nobody here likes plain donuts. All right, so, yep. Okay, uh, we are continuing on with our series on identity. And uh, for those of you who've missed or you're gone during Labor Day, we have all of our audio recordings online. You're welcome to go and access those. Um, I will post, I've already had a couple of you ask me about this. I will post the whole series later on this afternoon. That way you can prepare each week uh, for it, or you can kind of go back and look at it and kind of figure out where we're at. The other thing that I was going to uh, say this morning, and we need to get some feedback on this, I haven't really talked to anybody about it quite yet. Every semester, you usually do a class, some class on Sunday morning that about five or ten of you show up to, and it's on a variety of different topics. And so I don't really have anything that immediately jumps out at me from the sermon series. So if you've got something that you want us to do a class on, it's usually like a three or four week class. The last one we did uh, was aptly titled by Grant, uh, actually I can't remember it, but How to Have Conversations That Suck Less. Uh, political conversations, yes. So very, very much us, our church. Uh, that was a great one. It was really well put together. So anyway, if you've got an idea of something that you'd really love to study 
at, uh, I would say, a moderately in-depth level, let us know, and we'll do a class on it. Maybe I'll teach it, maybe someone else will, and it's just a way to kind of get a little bit deeper in and to do some study on something. There's plenty of things you can do with identity. I just don't have anything that really sticks out. So let me know. Okay, great, good, great. All right, so um, the first two weeks, we have more or less laid the foundation for the rest of this series, which is going to be based in the In Christ passages from Paul uh, and the Psalms. Okay, those are our two sources for looking at our identity as Christians. And last week, I preached a sermon that was slightly difficult um, but the idea was that all of the in Christ passages have kind of two components to them or are of two kinds, two categories. The first are of those objective statements of things that have been done. So let me make this a little bit easier and not use the word objective, even though it's more precise. These are things that have, have been done in the past, okay? They're things that simply have been done in our lives as Christians if we've accepted a Christ, followed him in obedience. They're just, they've been done. They're done. And we ought not live as if they're somehow being accomplished because they've already been done. And that will get us into a lot of trouble. And we use the example uh, of, you know, working and, and being in a workplace, you know, where you've been hired and focusing uh, on just being hired as, uh, as uh, proof that, uh, you know, you have the job rather than growing in that job. So that second aspect was there's some subjective thing going on in your faith where God is growing you, moving you. Um, it's specific to you and therefore is subjective, okay? But we could talk about that in terms of just the present, present things being done in our life, okay? So we've got the past, those things that God has already done, and we should be secure in, know them, have faith in them. And then the present, those things that God, uh, uh, the Spirit is doing in us each day and as we interact, all right? So as long as you kind of get that, you know, you're pretty much caught up and you'll be good to go. So let me read a story to, well, it's actually more of a quick biography of two sort of ancient church fathers, all right? Uh, the first is going to be Justin Martyr, uh, who many of you may have heard of, but more likely you've heard the word martyr, uh, which was a, a name given to him because he was martyred, like so many Christians in his time period. The second is a guy named Origen, may or may not have heard of him, I'm not really for sure, but I'm going to read you a little bit about both of them, and then we will uh, we'll get moving. All right. When Justin was arrested for his faith in Rome, the prefect asked him to denounce his faith by making a sacrifice to the gods. Justin replied, no one who is rightly minded turns from true belief to false. It was in one sense an easy answer for Justin because he had spent most of his adult life discerning the truth from the false. Justin was born in the Roman city of Flavia Nepolis. Sounds like an ice cream flavor. Maybe, maybe not. Raised by pagan parents, he sought to find life's meaning in the philosophies of his day. This only brought a series of disappointments. When his first teacher, who was a Stoic, knew nothing of God and did not even think knowledge of him to be necessary, there followed an itinerant philosopher who seemed more interested in getting his fees. Then came a Pythagorean, but his required course of music, astronomy, and geometry seemed far too slow. Finally, Platonism though intellectually demanding, proved unfulfilling for Justin's hungry heart. At last, about AD 130, after a conversation with an old man, his life was transformed. A fire was suddenly kindled in my soul. I fell in love with the prophets and those men who had loved Christ. I reflected on all their words and found his philosophy alone was true and profitable. This is how and why I became a philosopher, and I wish that everyone felt the same way that I do. 
Justin continued to wear his philosopher's cloak, seeking to reconcile faith and reason, reasoning. His teaching ministry took him to Ephesus, where he held a, a disposition with Trypho, a Jew. This is kind of his major work uh, that he's arguing back and forth between the difference between the identity of Christians and Jews, which at the time was really important. Later, he founded a school uh, attempting to explain the faith. He would say Christianity was not a threat to the state and should not be treated as an illegal religion. He wrote, on behalf of men of every nation who are unjustly hated and reviled. He tells the emperor that the Christians are the best helpers and allies in securing good order, convinced as we are that no wicked man can be hidden from God and that everyone goes to eternal punishment or salvation in accordance with the character of his actions. He further showed that Christianity is superior to paganism, that Christ's prophecy is fulfilled, and that paganism is actually a poor imitation of true religion. For years later, Justin and his disciples were arrested for their faith. When the prefect threatened them with death, Justin said, if we are punished for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, we hope to be saved. They were taken out and beheaded. Since he gave his life for the true philosophy, Justin has been surnamed martyr. All right, then Origen. The third century religious fanatic gave up his job, slept on the floor, ate no meat, drank no wine, fasted twice a week, owned no shoes, and reportedly castrated himself for the faith. All right, well, that took a turn. He was also the most prolific scholar of his age, with hundreds of works to his credit, a first-rate Christian philosopher and a profound student of the Bible. Child prodigy Origen, man of steel, which is what his name was, was born near Alexandria about AD 185. The oldest of seven children in a Christian home, he grew up learning the Bible and the meaning of commitment. In 202, when his father, Leonidas, was beheaded for his Christian beliefs, Origen went to die as a martyr or two, but his mother prevented him from leaving the house by hiding his clothes. So apparently, he was really concerned about dying naked. Uh, dying was fine, but dying naked, too much. To support his family, the 18-year-old Origen opened up a grammar school, copied texts, instructed catechumens. He himself studied under the pagan philosopher. Uh, I can't even remotely say that name. Uh, he was rich, and uh, he was supplied with all these secretaries. He ended up writing all of these books. Origen, later in uh, 500 AD, would eventually be called a heretic, okay, uh, and uh, excommunicated from the church sort of retroactively. Uh, but all the while, he was really one of the first church fathers that wrote a systematic theology, all right? So while some of his writings were thought to have been hypothetical, some contend that Origen was merely trying to frame the faith and the ideas of his day. Still, his works were suppressed following his condemna condemnation, so modern judgment is impossible. So for instance, like he believed that the Trinity had like a hierarchy uh, and kind of believed in universalism. He just believed some really weird stuff, all right? Anyway, no big deal for now. Despite such condemnation, Origen said, I want to be a man of the church, to be called of Christ. In fact, uh, one of the first defenses of Christianity produced was from his church and in his writing. Answering the charge that Christians, by refusing military service, fail the test of good citizenship, he wrote, We who are prayer, prayer warriors destroy all demons which stir up wars, violate oaths, and disturb the peace, are of more help to the emperor than those who seem to be doing the fighting. The authorities, however, were not convinced. In 250, the emperor Odysseus had Origen imprisoned and tortured. He was deliberately kept alive in hope that he would renounce his faith. He didn't, but Decius died first and Origen went free. His health broke down and Origen died shortly after his release. The early church fathers are full of wonderful and great and interesting stories like that. After all, of you have fallen asleep during me reading like a tiny page of history to you. The early church fathers have uh, forever, okay, impacted the way Christians saw themselves, okay? 
And no matter how far we get away from them, get away from Roman Catholicism, the, the early church fathers or the Greek fathers have a huge, huge impact on how we still see ourselves today and how we understand our theology, both for better and for worse, okay? And I'm not trying to, to tell you you need to go and study the early church fathers. Uh, there are all kinds of theories about there about them. You can read books. Some people absolutely detest them. Uh, I've taken numerous classes on the early church fathers, one in Regent most recently, and it's, it's tough. It's, it's painful stuff to read through some of what they've written and to just sort of see the world through their eyes, all right? So I'll say that uh, uh, from the get-go. One of the biggest problems with the church fathers is they lived in a day and age where from every uh, arena of life, they were being persecuted. And I'm not talking about persecuted in that people just hated them and said bad things to them, actually persecuted to the point of death, right? If anything, the first 200 years of Christianity was about Christians who wouldn't renounce their faith, particularly who became uh, major figures in local politics or in corporations, corporations, in uh, large organizations or unions, things like that, would ultimately lose their life for the sake of their faith. And of course, plenty of people renounced, but that was really the day and age most of these Christians came out of. And to understand this, you've got to realize Christianity, uh, the major problem with it early on is that it was very much uh, different than both Judaism and the Greek philosophies. And, it, and the Greek philosophies in Judaism really seemed to have no place for Christianity. And so a lot of these folks were just trying to figure out how to make sense of who they were, but more importantly, who they weren't, all right? And so the title of this sermon today, and uh, I really only have a few points, thank goodness, since I read that to you, I know you're already kind of checked out, um, is identity is subtraction, okay? Who we aren't. Christians are well known for subtracting things from the world around them. I'm going to take this at a very, very different route today. Uh, hopefully, you'll be able to appreciate this sermon title maybe after the fact. But again, the sermon title is Identity Through Subtraction, or Identity is Subtraction, Who We Aren't. In sociology, one of the uh, most kind of basic lessons we talk about in our classes, or I did talk about back when I taught it, was the whole idea of in-group, out-group bias. Any of you have heard this before? Yeah, what is it? Who's got it? In-group, out-group bias. No? Maybe? Yeah. So you maximize stereotypes about people uh, outside of the group and minimize stereotypes about yourself in the group. I always use the very racist example in my class of how a lot of us, and particularly in the Frisco area where it's like uh, not near as uh, diverse as the Denton area, you know, you see uh, some Latino people in a van, maybe 10 deep, okay? And you think, oh, these Latinos, man, they're just traveling in packs. You know, there's 10 of them, 12 of them. Some of you are like, I can't believe you just said that. And you maximize every time you see a van full of working Latinos and minimize the fact, number one, that you're being racist in what you're saying. And number two, you miss the fact that you already had 10 cars come before that that had one single Latino person in it, and you didn't even pay attention to the fact that, uh, you know, your ability to recognize the truth is a little bit skewed, right? So you maximize uh, your... Um, your thinking uh, or stereotypes about other people. Now, this has been one of the biggest problems that Christians have had throughout the ages in attempting to define their own identity, okay? Not really paying much attention to true pictures of people outside Christian faith and minimizing true pictures of people within the faith. And this is what the early church fathers did to, I think, in some degree, their own detriment. 
They were constantly trying to paint people outside the Christian faith as less than, worse than, not as good. And still, this is one of our biggest problems in Christianity today, is our idea of identity is often uh, simply a hollow identity that is a detraction or is a sort of subtraction of all the things that, that people have in their identities around us. So what's left ultimately in the Christian identity is a whole bunch of lists of no's and don'ts. And this is sort of the reputation that Christians have in our society. It's really unfortunate. But some of this dates back to a time period when the early church fathers had to try to figure out how to distinguish and differentiate themselves from the two major uh, you know, religions around them. All right? So who we aren't, uh, identity is subtraction. We're going to read Romans 8, 1 through 17. I know I didn't prepare you for this, so it's all good. No big deal. Uh, from now on, you'll have these. Romans is probably one of the, uh, besides Colossians, uh, Galatians, Ephesians, the best places to read the in Christ passages. All right? There's a lot of them in Romans. There's a lot of them in Galatians, Ephesians, uh, Colossians, and, uh, and Ephesians. All right? A lot of these in Christ passages. So, we're focusing here in these first 17 verses on who we aren't as Christians. And I've already hopefully laid the framework that the point here is not to detract or subtract from what the other people are doing around us, but our subtraction is going to be a little bit different. So let's see what happens here. That doesn't make any sense to you. It's fine. It will hopefully in a moment. So Romans 8, 1, we'll read in the NIV. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay? Objective, subjective statement objective, right? This has been done. No more condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Okay? Objective. We preached a sermon on the Holy Spirit's Holy Spirit uh, maybe a year ago, and I brought up the idea that, the, that this is sort of traditional flesh versus, uh, you know, spirit fighting constantly in Christian faith is really sort of an idea foreign to the Bible, that once you're a Christian, these things don't fight in the sense that we think of them as sort of opposing forces. I'll mention that in a moment. I'm sorry, I should have mentioned that this was going to be a little heady. I apologize. I didn't know that it was going to go in this direction quite yet. You know, my brain. So, no condemnation, objective. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their mindset on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their mindset on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. The mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's laws, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but not to the flesh, to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. 
For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Father, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Co-heirs with Christ, objective, subjective. Ooh, this is a tricky one. Yeah, so it's one of those proofs of things that aren't so neatly packed into one, you know, category, right? Because technically you're, a hair, you're an heir, hair. I always want to say hair. I mean, you just read that word and you're like, hair, hair. I'm a hair of that guy. Uh, so much less meaningful than heir. Heir is both an objective truth, certainly, but an heir doesn't get what he gets, right, until the time comes, and the time certainly hasn't come, and so this would be both objective and subjective, which we'll talk about in just a moment. So who aren't we? Okay, I've got three points for you. They're pretty simple compared to all this nonsense that I've said uh, up to this point. Number one, okay, we aren't condemned by the evil forces of death that are opposed to God. We are simply, we've moved from being condemned by evil to not being condemned by those evil forces. Now, of course, those forces are controlled by God, but we are no longer condemned. This is an objective truth that has to do with something that's, that doesn't really quite make sense to us because it's still in the realm of like spiritual and flesh and all these things. But what we know from this scripture is we are simply not condemned anymore. Now, I want you to think about this word because this word is really, really tricky. Most of us don't use it much other than in extreme situations where someone's being condemned, like condemned to jail, uh, buildings being condemned, it's going to be like torn down. I mean, this is, you know, intense stuff. So we're going to have to kind of unpack that a tiny bit, but I don't want you to focus so much on the condemned part as much as you aren't controlled simply anymore by the evil forces opposed to God in this world. Simple as that. Before Christ you were, after Christ you're not. Simple as that. There are these forces, they're evil, they come from human nature, they come from the world around us, they can't come from man's free choice, they come from all kinds of areas that we can't possibly understand. You are no longer controlled by those forces when you're in Christ. God takes the, the helm and says, nope, not anymore, now controlled by righteousness and the things that God wants. All those forces opposed to death that are hostile toward God, that want only the worst for people, you are no longer controlled by. That is the testimony of Scripture. And it's the first thing to understand here as a part of your identity. Number two, you aren't simply controlled by human impulses anymore. So the first one, we aren't condemned by evil forces of death, verse 4. The second one, simply controlled by human impulses, verse 11. This is even more exciting, I think, to many of us because we recognize human psychology and human behavior and the whole uh, you know, uh, realm of mental illness. And so a lot of days we wake up, we feel very much controlled by human impulse. Now I want to say something just as a side thought here. The Greek fathers tended to be pretty platonic in their ideology, which just meant that they had this severe separation in their mind between the body and the soul. Number one, guys, the scripture does not talk about our soul. All right? Not in the sense that we think about it as this eternal existence within us, that lasts from beginning of time to end of time, it simply doesn't talk about that. It doesn't. You wonder why some of the Old Testament folks didn't believe that there was a resurrection? It's because this whole idea of the eternality of the soul or the uh, you know, ever-existing presence of a human soul that lasts forever is totally a Greek idea that the Greek fathers just picked up on and added to Christianity. 
And they did a lot of that with the you know, Greek truths of their day. The whole idea of us existing in some soul state or spirit state for eternity is simply not a scriptural idea. Eternal life, sure. Uh, but that was a gift that God gave us, not something that sort of indwelt within us. But anyway, Platonic thought was that the, ba- the, the body was bad, matter was bad for the most part, and the highest form of good was the mind, the spirit, the soul, these things that were ethereal. They're not there to touch. And many of the Greek fathers just picked up on this. So often when we read Romans 8, we think about the flesh as being the body, and that's it, and think that everything that comes from our body is somehow bad. Christians in their uh, ignorant attempts to subtract from the world around them have constantly mortified their bodies, hurt their bodies, harmed their bodies, gone to be a martyr just for the sake of it, out of reading scriptures like this, which simply just came from the Greek society that they were in. Uh, In this scripture, it very much says that God is going to give life to our mortal bodies, our physical bodies. And I know we talk about this with some frequency around here, but this whole idea of disembodied heaven and things like that, you know, hopefully you've gotten past that. You can kind of move beyond that. The scripture talks about heaven in terms of a resurrected body, a resurrected earth, things that we can touch and see and maybe hopefully taste. I've given you my thoughts about heaven being, being like Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. <laughs> but this is very good news for us because in Christ we are no longer controlled by our bodily impulses, okay, or mind's impulses, whatever that is to be mortal. These things are actually themselves, the physical realities are being renewed and changed, okay? And this is really, really, really good news, uh, particularly if you're someone like me who deals with mental illness, uh, this is a good, good thing, that this uh, trajectory, even though on the worst days doesn't seem like it's getting any better, is going in some good direction. The last thing, and I think the most important thing from this entire text, and one of the most difficult to chew on, is we no longer have to fear God. At least not in the way that people tend to think about fear. That sort of unreasonable, sometimes I'm afraid, sometimes I'm not. I watched a scary movie like It last night, even though Nicole thinks it's funny, and uh, and then I can't go to bed, okay? That kind of fear that's here today, gone tomorrow. When I watched Paranormal Activity, the first like, couple, I'm not going to lie to you, man. I was freaked out, going home by myself, in my bed. That's the worst, worst place for a movie, a scary movie, in your bed, man. I mean, that's just, that's not fair. That's not right, you know? Um, but fear is like that for us. This, this sort of natural, animalistic human fear where fear is today, where we have it, the next day it's gone. We no longer have to fear God like that. Guys, no matter what people tell you about whether they believe God or not, most people fear God or powers beyond themselves very randomly in their lives. I have met very few people who truly don't fear uh, some power beyond them, okay? But one of the most encouraging things about this passage is it tells us we no longer fear God. We no longer question, wonder, not only what is he doing, but is he, if he's got it out for me. We can now move to this other kind of fear that the scripture talks about, which is a reverent fear, a respectful fear, 
a fear of knowing that God is in control and has power and can submit to that power, not living one day as if he doesn't exist and the next day as if he does and hates us and back and forth and back and forth, which is really what all religion has been up to this point. We no longer have to fear God that way. Talks about that in verse 15. So who we aren't, let me just review this really quickly because these are important identity things that you're gonna have to kind of think through, figure out, uh, this is a kind of a part one lesson, part two next week uh, when we talk a little bit about suffering. Number one, we are not condemned by the evil forces of death in this world anymore. We are not just given over to death and controlled by the forces of death in uh, our world. Two, we aren't simply controlled by uh, human impulses. We no longer live each day from one impulse to the next, wondering who I'm, who's going to show up today. Now guys, I'm not talking about this. I'm talking about this on a very, very high level, all right? I'm not preaching the, you know, wealth and health gospel here and saying that, you know, no one struggles with sin anymore. I'm not a Methodist. And uh, that, you know, nobody is going to struggle with mental illnesses. Uh, you know, I'm not a fundamentalist. And you shouldn't take medicine, things like that. This is high level. This is stuff that, you know, at the basic core of who we are, you've got to understand these things have been done and this is just who you are. And how does that change how you think about a lot of the world around you? We aren't condemned by the evil forces of death opposed to God. You read in these books all the time, these evil forces. I'm reading uh, Running Man by Stephen King right now. Actually, I kind of read most of it yesterday. I watched the Honor Schwarzenegger version somehow. Why? What the? What was that? I mean, actually, I liked it, but the book is nowhere anywhere. And it's nowhere near that. But here's a man in a poor society who has to go and you know, basically run a race where people are trying to kill him where no one's ever won just so he can you know, feed, not feed, so he can take care of his daughter who has some kind of you know, emphysema or something like that. Uh, well, he's all around him in this book. He's controlled by the forces of death around him. He's just controlled by it. He has no option, no way out. This is not going to end well. Many of us have all but put death out of our minds completely, living in a society where we don't see it much anymore, where it just doesn't happen much. Uh, one of my favorite Seinfeld bits was that, you know, people are now more, afraid of public speaking than they are afraid of death. And, you know, those are the top two uh, fears of Americans, which means most people would rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. <laughs> I love that bit. That's just such a good <laughs> bit. I mean, that's just perfect. But why is it that as Americans, we fear death so much? We're a Christian society. We, how did that happen? Like, we should be like the least likely to fear death. No, we fear death because it's not around us a lot. And so this news of you know, uh, not being condemned by the evil forces of death, it's just going to sort of run off, you know? It's kind of, eh, that sounds pretty good, but I'm, I'm, I, that's not one of my biggest fears when I wake up in the morning that I'm going to die. <laughs> uh, I don't really want to think about that. So. so we'll move on from that one, but it's still important. And think for a moment outside of yourself how important that idea is to the vast majority of people living around our world right now that they are no longer subject to the forces, the evil forces of death that control the world that is opposed uh, to God. That is unbelievably good news, okay? Two, we aren't simply controlled by human impulses. All right, as much as we struggle with who we are and you know, how we feel and what we want and desire, uh, you know, simply, that's, we're just not tied down to that anymore. We're no longer slaves to that kind of uh, do this one day, do this the next. Who I am is who you get. Uh, God is actively working in our very bodies, not just our minds. 
okay? And that's important. And then the last one, we aren't fearful uh, of God anymore. We don't need to be. Uh, we can now be intentionally afraid of God in a way that's reverent and uh, not the kind of fear uh, that many of us uh, have, the one day on, one day off, irrational survival type of fear. I want to finish with Psalm 15 because, uh, you know, each week we're kind of supposed to be finding a psalm that matches, uh, to some degree, what, uh, what these truths about identity are saying. So Psalm 15 is the one I picked. It's very short. I'm going to read it in the NRSV. Or, O Lord, who may abide in your tent, who may dwell on your holy hill, those who walk blamelessly and do what is right, speak the truth from their heart, don't slander with their tongue, and do no evil to their friends, or take up reproach against their neighbor, in whose eyes the wicked are despised, but who honor those who fear the Lord, who stand by their oath even to their hurt, who do not lend money at interest, and do not take a bribe against the innocent. Those who do these things shall never be moved. So next week, I'm going to talk about this idea of suffering because, uh, you know, there are huge implications for these three identity things uh, in regard to the idea of suffering. And even at the end, this whole passage ends with the idea that your goal is to suffer in Christ so as to have glory in Christ. And so next week, we'll talk a little bit about, uh, about suffering. But I do want to take a few, uh, you know, questions if you have some about uh, what is exactly we just talked about. You know, like, what, what just happened? Yeah, Margo, seasoned question answer, asker. I like that. It's good. It's not a bad thing. All right. Probably not. My, if you, only you saw my notes. Uh, I have, like, two sentences, really, that are full sentences. So. It's like half a page. So, yeah, no, probably not. Uh, but I'll guess. Fundamental truths to identity, maybe. <laughs> Guys, when we're thinking about this sermon series, I try to pick these identity things as the most important things for us to learn. And as we move on, less and less important, sort of like you can grow in these as you mature and understand them later. Picking more objective things at first, because some of us just need lessons, including myself, uh, or reminders of things that have already been done in us. And so that I'm trying my best to pick those most important ones up top. So if there is a time to study, it's now to go back and try to understand what it exactly is we're talking about. I know some of this seems pretty theological and hard to understand, but l let me say a couple things. One, man, we are pretty not intellectually inclined when it comes to understanding identity. We love to understand our individuality. We love that. We'll take Star Wars personality test all day long. Uh, but we do not have much of a clue as to what our identity is in Christ. Because some of us have focused far too much on our individualistic relationship with God, and that's really hard to start from. If you don't know first how you belong to this larger scheme of things, it's going to be very difficult for you to pull apart individual things that are of any meaning at all, okay? And so that's, that's super important for us to do. Yeah. Unhealthy fear of God, yeah. Uh, well, I think the biggest thing to me is all of this subtraction that Christians have done you know, in the past. They've subtracted from the world around them rather than subtracting uh, from uh, the good things, right? So they take good things in the world around them and subtract from them. I need to be harsh on the body. I need to be perfect in my you know, behavior. I need to not believe what all the rest of the people around me think. 
rather than taking these positive statements of subtraction in scripture, like we're not condemned, we're not controlled by human impulses, all these things that are nots, but they're good nots, not not in relation to the society around me, this in-group, out-group stuff that's going on. Does that make sense? My wife is looking at me with like a big, okay, let me make it a little bit more simple. We often try to find identity markers as Christians that are really simple identity markers, okay? I don't cuss. I'm a Christian. Mm, oh, good. I'm glad. <laughs> uh, good for you. That's great. I dress this way. I go to this church. I'm not like these people. Uh, all the things that are rules of don'ts that are ultimately just about in-group, out-group markers. It, it, it's, it's the same when you think about race and ethnicity, right? We have this tendency to think that because you're the same race or you're the same ethnicity, that there's all these commonalities. Guys, there's more diversity within the racial and ethnic uh, categories in terms of personality and life experiences and things like that than there is a, uh, uh, a cross. Does that make sense? No? Maybe? Yeah? No? Okay, well, let me just start with this. Basic genetic fact. There's more genetic variation within uh, each of the racial and ethnic identity, uh, uh, identities than there is across all of it. Does that make sense? Oh, man, I've got to go into anthropology now. <laughs> We have a tendency to simply find identity markers that are cheap identity markers. They're surface, they're badges, they're not internal, okay? They're not deep inside of who we are. So that's a lot of what we do with the world around us. That's a lot of what the Greek fathers were doing. They were trying to simply differentiate themselves from the Jews, the Greeks, not necessarily in deep core ways, but in ways that just made them look different. Guys, our, most of our Bible, okay, came from the Qumran community. Most of what we have now in the Dead Sea Scrolls came from a community that hid in caves, okay? From everybody else around them because they thought if they could just hide away, somehow they'd truly be Christian. Like as if hiding from all people and subtracting all the influences of the world are gonna really make them Christian. Now we're kind of thankful for those crazies because now we have some Dead Sea Scrolls. But, and maybe that's how God used them in the only way, I don't know, but, you know, the whole idea of a lot of these early Greek fathers as being, you know, hurting their bodies and harming themselves and things like this, these were identity markers. These were not core values. Think about martyrs, for instance. You know, being a martyr is not a good thing always. There are plenty of people who are martyrs because they've been peer pressured into being a martyr, that are martyrs because their life now is terrible, so they might as well die. What's going to be worse about it? But how few people who've really been martyred for their faith truly believed what they were doing and said what martyr, Justin Martyr would actually say, that a person in their right mind isn't going to say something as false that is true and therefore didn't renounce it. So just dying even itself is not some identity marker, uh, you know, that, uh, that we can make, even though it's become one um, in, in some societies. Another question? Grant? Yeah, the simple thing is that flesh doesn't represent the body. Oh, yeah, he just, all right. Oh, yeah, there's people up here. Um, <laughs> He just asked that he, or he agrees that the flesh and uh, the spirit are, you know, not separate or completely separate like we put them, but that in other parts of scripture, it kind of makes sense of this separation because the scripture seems to embrace that separation itself. The simple answer is that flesh uh, is not at all meaning the body at all times. It's simply just in the way that the spirit doesn't mean our soul, Okay. It's simply talking about, in words that the uh, original hearers could understand, the stuff that's like a part of our natural impulses, as best as we understand them, and the part that's a part of kind of our rational and reasoning mind and, you know, who we are. 
So this idea that the flesh is always talking about the body is almost never true. In fact, it doesn't even make sense because otherwise Paul is contradicting himself in the very passages he's talking about, saying that the body is both death and that God gives moral life to that body. This doesn't sound near as complicated as it is. You guys, you know how words take on meanings, and in one context, they can mean something completely different. It's not that surprising that in their context, they wouldn't have been reading flesh as we read flesh. Uh, It was only the Greek fathers after that reading into, oh, every time it's flesh, that means the body. Oh, I remember Plato talking about the caves and the shadows and how, you know, matter is bad. Let's not do matter because, you know, what's really important is rational thinking and all these things in this sort of like spirit world and our bodies aren't important. Okay, pass it on. So flesh just simply doesn't mean body. That's the best way to talk about that. Flesh is, means a lot of things. Sometimes it only simply means the part of your flesh that is sinful in its impulses to fight God. So it just does not at all mean the body. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, maybe. I like how I said it better, but yeah, I mean, that's... <laughs> that, was, that was a quicker, more efficient way, sure. I mean, but that... Okay, fine. You want to start breaching then? One, 30 seconds. <laughs> that one you're going to have to figure out on your own. No, no. no. <laughs> yeah, no, no. The biggest thing is that he's talking about fear in a reverent way. And, uh, and, and not in a way that, uh, that we think about fear. is a random fear. A fear of, you know, is God going to punish me? Is God going to do something? But you're going to have to figure that out on your own. I really do don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, it will be really helpful for you guys in trying to apply these identity markers to find what makes sense to you from them in the Psalms. The Psalms are not, I mean, it's not like David was like, all right, Paul's going to write Romans 8, so I better write a Psalm based on that. Or Paul's not like, oh, let me rephrase, you know, Psalm 15. You've got to kind of figure that out on your own. And actually that activity, if you don't do anything other than that, will help you think through some of these identity things in a way that's worshipful and, uh, and that makes sense between you and God. So now you've got to figure out what the heck did I just say, or Chelsea, if you want the abbreviated version, uh, and find a psalm that, uh, that kind of connects back up with that. I'm serious. If that's the only assignment that you do, why are you looking at me like this is like the worst task ever? You know I mean? You know, I just... That's okay. Most people are, you know? I mean, that's, I'm too. One more, Justin, and then we're done. Mm-hmm. I said simply. I did try to do that. I marked it out and then I put it back. But I said, we're not simply controlled. That's a, it's a tricky one. Right? Yeah. Well, thankfully, it's not your task. Yeah, he just wants to know he's an emotional person. So, uh, you know. <laughs> I want to tell you guys that. And also say that the whole idea of we're not simply controlled by our human impulses is really hard to believe. And uh, thankfully, that's the whole point of that passage is that, uh, that the Spirit is doing that in us as, you know, uh, he's moving through us. That, uh, that it has to do with the big thing on that, uh, for instance, at least in my mind, is that your personality doesn't have to be the only thing that defines you anymore. Um, and for many of us, that is really what we've got. Our personality our mental illnesses, those are the things that define who we are. And in Christ, they don't have to define us anymore because we can grow uh, or at least deal with them, sometimes not fully and not ever and not in a you know, short period of time, but we can still look at them and deal with them differently uh, because we're freed from those being the only things that control and define who we are. And I think a lot of us have testimonies to that, uh, at, at being very, very true. So, you know, and of course, being emotional is not, whatever that even means, I don't even know what that means, but... Um, uh, you know, that's not, not a bad thing. So if you guys got more questions, you can always ask me after. 
Uh, sorry that this one was a little bit, uh, maybe too much. Maybe I, I bit off a little bit more than I could chew. Maybe three and one. I shouldn't have done three points. I haven't done a three-point sermon in forever, all right? So I apologize. Uh, no more. So um, we're going to take uh, communion now. And uh, our uh, way of doing communion, just uh, for those of you who uh, um, you know, don't know very well, we just dip the bread into or the juice, and there'll be three lines back there. You can take that. Uh, our noise is just a celebration of what Jesus has done in our hearts and in our lives, and so please don't be offended by that. If, if you want to sit down and say a prayer or be a little bit more reverent or think through some of the things that we've talked about, that's great too. Lord God, thank you for uh, these amazing things that you have done in us and are doing in us. It is so unbelievably easy to find our identity in so many easier and uh, more packaged ways. Um, and it's so much more difficult to really sit and think through what it is that you've done and uh, what you're doing. I just pray that in this series that we could um, just wrestle with this more, understand it more, be challenged by the new identity that we have, be appreciative of it, um, weed out some of the identities that we've taken on uh, that have very little to do with who you are and what you're doing in us. Celebrate you now as you've given us Jesus and a perfect example of, uh, of how to see ourselves and how to live. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.